Chris Cleave is a journalist who has worked for the Daily Telegraph. His first novel is Incendiary, the story of the aftermath of a terrorist bombing in London, published the week of the terrorist bombings in London. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hello, thanks for having me. Chris, the main feature of this novel, the driving force of this novel, is the wonderful voice you've developed for the nameless narrator. Tell us a little bit about how that came across. Did you discover the voice in the plot, or did the voice speak to you and the whole thing unfolded afterward? Everything started with the voice. I was trying to write a book that was really different from anything I'd written before, and in fact from stuff that I'd read before. I wanted to tell a story about terrorism, but that gave it a human face, and I was looking for a voice to to fit that face. And I found it just riding around on buses in the east end of London. I was um, It's something I do a lot. I'm a bit of a snooper. So I hang around in bars, I hang around in hotel lobbies, I hang out on the top deck of buses. And those are places where you become invisible. And it's very strange. You can be sitting behind people on a bus and they will share with each other at the tops of their voices their most intimate secrets. And it's extraordinary just listening to the things they say and the way they speak. And an amalgam of many voices that I'd heard walking around London, just hanging out and being basically a spy, came to me uh, and came into this voice of, of one woman. I, I knew it was starting to come together when she, she became like, very dry. She's got this really dry side to her. But then when she started cracking jokes, I knew that it was right. I knew, you know, she convinced me. And then I sort of tried to let that voice really inhabit me for about a week, really, just mucking around with it, just writing, uh, you know, a paragraph of her and then a page of her. And then suddenly it all came together and I wrote that whole first draft of the book in six weeks or six and a half weeks. And it just came from that voice and I felt that I couldn't stop writing. I was sure that if I stopped, I'd lose that voice. So I hardly slept, you know, it was a lot of lot of coffee, uh, a lot of keyboard work late at night, and, and there she is. This novel has the feel, a lot of it, of almost a stand-up comedian's monologue, only the subjects you're talking about are dramatic, not comedic. Tell us a little bit about how you weave intimately the comedic and the dramatic in this book. I've been um, reading a lot um, and listening a lot to people that have been bereaved, it's an extraordinary state. It's like a kind of psychosis. There are these reactions that people have to tragedy, to personal tragedy and to collective tragedy, which are very strange. People use humour and the darkest of humour to defend themselves against horror. You know, Because if you look these things absolutely in the eye, if you just look a bereavement like that in the eye, it would drive you crazy. And people try and avoid confronting their grief directly they let it in in little bits they let it in by making jokes about it they let it in by denying that it's happened by doing things to turn the clock back and this is what I think is really beautiful about people is that they will use laughter even when it's really inappropriate and and, you know this is what bereaved people do People react to grief in strange ways that I've tried to capture. One of the things I like is these artefacts that were associated with with the dead person. Joan Didion's written a book called A Year of Magical Thinking, which is really interesting on that subject. She just talks about how she couldn't give her her dead husband's shoes away, you know, because what if he needed them when he came back? This is the kind of denial that, that um, bereaved people have. So they use that denial and they use humour. And... I found that that tragedy is actually more painful and more shocking 
when the narrator talks about it obliquely like that, using this very dark humour. It's almost too big to confront head-on. And that's, I think, where the balance comes between the tragedy and the comedy. It doesn't belittle the subject to make light of it like that, because that's what bereaved people do. Tell us a little bit about how you studied the psychology of bereavement. Did you look at texts, or did you talk to bereaved people? I, I listened a lot to the th- the things that people had said after 9-11. Um, the 9-11 families were quite interesting. There's a lot of audio stuff from them on the web. There's a lot of transcripts of interviews with them. I listened to that to get specific reaction to a tragedy. I talked a lot to people who had gone through loss, and not necessarily the physical loss of a person, but people who'd been through divorces, people who had had situations where they'd been really friendly with someone and then they'd had a falling out. These are the sort of small dress rehearsals for bereavement that we go through in life. And these are the things, if you, you know, if you keep your ears open, you do pick up on these strange mechanisms that people use to defend themselves in that bereavement. And then, of course, my background is, is in psychology as well. I did, my, my degree was in experimental psychology, so I had been exposed to quite a lot of the literature of bereavement. And it's a strange state. It really is. It's very little understood. I mean, I don't understand much about it. I don't think anyone does, because it's, it's, everyone lives it differently. And it is a psychosis. You have hallucinations. You have delusions. Things that happen to your memory that are very strange. You become irrational. You believe that you can turn the clock back. You can change the way the die has, has been cast. I... I think one of the reasons it's interesting is because so little is known about it at the individual level. When, when someone dies in a car crash, for example, or is taken by illness, that's a very personal tragedy. When someone dies in a, in a large terrorist attack, that's a personal tragedy for everybody involved, but it's also a collective tragedy for the city affected. And I think one of the dynamics that makes incendiary work is because the strange state of bereavement, the strange psychosis, is filling the mind of the narrator and it's also filling the streets of the city she's living in at the same time. So it's very hard to work out where reality lies in her city or in her mind. And that's why, you know, that's why bereavement is interesting. Tell us a little bit about the setup of the novel. The, the book's set in the east end of London, in an area called Bethnal Green, which is the sort of historic heart of working-class London. It's symbolic of regeneration, because throughout the history of London it's been you know, rotted by plague, burned out by fire, bombed to smithereens, and, and each time like people have come back and rebuilt, and those are the streets that it's set in. The woman who's writing is a working-class mother uh, and, a hus- uh, and, and a wife who is faithful emotionally to her husband and her son, but who physically um, is very unfaithful. She's very promiscuous, but for her, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a quirk in her. So she has this flaw, which I like, because I think people are flawed. I, I like complicated people. I think people can only be truly heroic if their biggest struggle is with themselves. You know, I don't like these sort of two-dimensional heroes and heroines. I think she's very complicated. She loses her husband and her son in a horrible terrorist attack in a, in a football match, a soccer match, at a premiership game in London. And the scale of this tragedy is so much that no one can really get their bearings. London fortifies itself. She has to fortify herself at the same time in order just to survive. And it's the story of her 
trying to find some meaning in her life, trying to rebuild a life for herself, trying to find someone to love, because she has this insatiable need to love somebody since her son, who she absolutely adores, is taken away. But she, she's quite unsuccessful in finding target for this, uh, for this huge arsenal of, of love that she has. And it's very, you know, the, the story is the difficulty of finding love in a time of terror. And that's, that's what I wanted to examine. Because I think, you know, what we're trying to defend as a society is, is the ability to love and the ability to care. And in this world into which she's projected after this huge attack, it becomes very difficult to love, it becomes very difficult to care, it becomes difficult to do anything other than to protect yourself and survive. And for her, just survival isn't enough. She needs to love. She needs to love so much that she almost makes her son live again. You know, at first it appears that she's going through some hallucinatory episode. But actually you realise that the love in her for her son can't just be turned off like that when the son dies. It needs to find some expression. So it's that. That's the, that's the setup of the story. Like, is love strong enough to overcome terror? Is love strong enough to find its target? Is love strong enough to find its antagonist always? And it's a difficult question to ask because in times like these, the answer isn't always obvious. You know? And I don't think the book actually answers that question. I hope it raises it in an interesting way. The novel is written in an epistolary format. Tell us a little bit about why you chose that format whom she's addressing, and how it relates to the history of these types of novels. It's a really good question. She, she's writing an open letter to Osama bin Laden. She wants him to read it because she's convinced that if he does, if she can make him, I think in her words, realise for one second what it means to love a human boy, then there's no way he could continue with his campaign of terror because it would make him too sad. It's an honest, heartfelt belief. Maybe it's a naive belief, but actually, it, it's quite a noble and profound belief. And you've got to ask, you know, who is actually making an effort to change Osama bin Laden's mind? A lot of people are making an effort to change his, his, his physical makeup with bullets and dynamite. But, you know, an adjunct to those efforts, which I applaud, because I think, you know, there needs to be a security response, but a useful adjunct to that is that someone should be trying to change his mind. And this is this narrator's idea behind writing him a letter. She genuinely believes that, that if he can understand love, if she can make him understand the strength of the love that he's taken away, he would be too sad to carry on. That's the rationale in the book behind writing it as a letter. My rationale as a writer come, comes in slightly differently. I've always loved uh, first-person writing. I love the idea that there's a voice that's the, whole, the point of the book. And for me, there needs to be a human focus for that voice and there needs to be a reason for why these words have come to be put down on paper. I've never really gone for this sort of third-person voice of God narrative uh, you know, that where the narrator can, can somehow see into the minds of all of the characters and just like pull lines of dialogue and in a monologue out of all of their heads and, and put it down as if they were cutting a film together from various third-person perspectives. Uh, for me, I've always been really excited by first-person. You know, this happened to me. I'm weird. I'm strange. You, you, as the reader, will see how distorted I am as a voice. You know, but, uh, because I think it's exciting to read. 
You know, I think it gives the it, it lets the reader use all of their intelligence. You know, it doesn't doesn't lay the whole framework of the story out for them. It lets them fill in the gaps, and that's why I think first person is really exciting. And the, I think you know. One of the most obvious but strangely effective ways of doing first person is to to write a letter. Again, people do. You know, people's people write for a reason. People write letters to the council so to get off their parking fines. People write letters to their MP in an effort to change their minds. And people should write letters to terrorists if they had an address. That you know, they should write to them directly. Unfortunately, the only letters you can write to terrorists are open letters. It's the only way you can conduct that kind of debate. And so. The, the the letter format works for me at a writing level because I just love writing in the first person. I love reading people's first person books, but it also works you know, on on a on kind of a, a message level. You know that people do write letters and they should. Your character has an obsessive compulsive personality. Tell us a little bit about that aspect of her, how you develop it, and why. The the obsessive personality really fascinates me I think in part because I'm really obsessive I really relate to my narrator's stranger behaviours in this book I am the sort of person that will go and check the gas not once, not twice, but three times can't stop myself doing it I can't stop myself when I'm halfway down the road to the tube station going back to see if I shut the front door I don't know why that happens. It doesn't strike me as like a major problem in my life, but I know it's weird. I catch myself doing these weird things, these stylized behaviors. I think that's the thing that also makes me able to shut myself in a room for six weeks and uh, and write something and go back to it and edit it and edit it and edit it until I like it. You know, it's obsessional. And and I think most people are obsessive about something and if you know if you just if if you dig deep enough most people have a have a glitch have a thing that they can't walk away from you know and for a lot of people that's a person and that's really beautiful you know because that's called love um you know these people that you can't walk away from you can't stop caring about you can't stop thinking about I, I see that as a very beautiful part of the human condition and it's sometimes it's so strong that it kind of spills over into things like going and checking the gas and writing novels and things like that. But I, I, I think her obsession, her deepest obsession, is with her son and it's love and that I think a lot of people would recognise themselves in that obsession. And it just spills over for her, spills over into making sure that everything's obsessively tidy and clean. And She's very honest about her compulsions, and I think most people, if they really analyse their life, will find those compulsions there as well. It's Obsessive-compulsive disorder is an official disorder now. I don't think it was until you know maybe uh, 20 years ago or so. It's one of the newer uh, official things to suffer from. But I think it's... It's not a disorder like um, schizophrenia, which has a very sort of discrete occurrence. There's real sort of clusters of behaviour that we we class as these major psychoses. Whereas obsessive-compulsive disorder is something that's very much got a normal distribution through the population. We've all got a bit of it. And I quite like that because when the narrator starts off by introducing you to the the edges of her, her small psychosis, they seem very natural. And then she almost makes it quite seductive and you as a reader I hope like are slowly drawn into this crazy logic of her obsessions in a way you know you you come to to understand her because I think like obsessive compulsive disorder is another name for love 
that's the same obsession, the same inability to forget about people. Unfortunately, sometimes, yeah, it makes you walk back and check you've closed the front door. One of the things you do quite well in this novel is externalize interior landscapes. And you do this incorporating many elements of the fantastic. This book becomes increasingly surreal as it proceeds. Tell us a little bit about how you deployed those elements, how you decided when they were appropriate, and how you came up with the distinct images. I'm talking about the burning imagery and some other imagery that we see recurring again and again, twins. I found it important to externalize some of the things she was going through to make it, and and to do so in a way that you didn't really know what was happening externally and what was happening in her mind. I wanted her confusion about that distinction to come across and to to be confusing for the reader as well at first until you know as you go through the book maybe it becomes clearer and then suddenly it isn't clear anymore what's actually happening outside and what what's happening in her mind I, I, I've tried to use that that kind of symbolism on two levels the first is very sort of work a day and it's very normal and there's nothing uh, magical about it in any way sometimes she will just drift off into a reverie. She will, she'll be in the middle of her workaday life. She'll be tidying the kitchen and thinking about um, her husband and her boy. And then suddenly she'll think about clouds drifting over London, out over the Thames estuary and out over the North Sea. And there'll just be these sudden moments where you get the idea that London is a very small place and this huge theatre of tragedy that she's living her life out in is actually quite a small blip on a planet that has things like oceans and clouds and sky. And sometimes she'll drift off into quite a healthy reverie, which kind of places her interior conflict into a sort of more universal context. And then the other level in which her interior life is externalised is much less healthy. And that's when you get, you know, she'll see her boy... She'll see her boy walking like a tightrope artist down the white lines of, of, the, of the highway, you know, smoke coming out of the ends of his fingers. His arms are extended for balance. And I've, I've deliberately tried to make the, the symbols light and beautiful and uplifting at the same time as they are disturbing. I mean, that image of the boy, as you know, when he's balancing on the white line, his arms are extended and he's very delicate, you know, it's a very beautiful image if it weren't for the smoke curling out of him. You know, it's that the light and the darkness at the same time. It's all of the imagery, uh, things which are very comfortable, also become terrifying. So there's no simple externalization of her psyche going on there. And that's deliberate because I think that's how terrorism works. They take a symbol which has always been an externalization of something we have internal. And it's something that we find comforting and something that we're passionate about. And then they make that uncomfortable and disturbing. So if you look at a, a good example is you know, what they do to cities now. You know, a city like London, like New York, uh, like Madrid, is a place, you know, I think the word probably derives from citadel. It's, it's um, a place where we've always gone to feel safe. And you know, the image of a city is an externalization of our interior desire for safety and security. So they've taken that thing and suddenly they've made it dangerous, right? Suddenly it's dangerous for us to cluster together. It exposes us to greater risk, not less. The, the rules have totally changed. And 
terrorism relies on taking a symbol, something like you know the image of a city or the image of a football match, something which we were comfortable and passionate about that reflected a good aspect of our interior life, a good externalization, and then they make that uncomfortable. And so all of the imagery in the book is like that. It's, um, it's edgy. It's something that's beautiful, made horrible, made horrible with blood, with fire, um, with smoke, with just slightly nervous glances, people acting not the way you'd expect them to. There's a slight edge of hysteria, and even just in the basic symbols of the book. And I thought that was, you know, I, I chose that deliberately because I think the symbolism reflects the visual language of terror. In this novel, it's highly informed by your work as a journalist, isn't it? Well, is, I'll clarify what I did as a journalist. I was never a, a big uh, reporter. I worked for the Daily Telegraph for three years. Um, I was a sub-editor, uh, not a reporter, and I was attached to their internet site. So what I was doing was taking copy from journalists, editing it down, sometimes editing it up. You know, you'd, you'd get some stuff through on the wires, you know, the news, news wire services, and I'd bang them together into a story. So I was always writing stuff up or writing it down. And, you know, right in the sort of engine room of a newspaper, but not on the glamour end by, by any means. What, what I learned there, I think, was a familiarity with the language. Because it, it's, you just, in those newsrooms, you have such tight deadlines, you're just using the stuff like a tool... You know, the English language suddenly becomes a commodity that you bang together like Meccano, and, and there's a, a, a way to do it. You know, there's a, there's, there's a way, you know, sh- the shortest sentences possible. Make sure it explains what you're trying to say, you know, unambiguously. It becomes a very, you know, different way of thinking about language from the sort of rather rambling uh, way that I speak, <laughs> for example. I learned how to really, you know, get on top of the language there. And I met some extraordinary people. I mean, some of these journalists are just awesome people. You know, their grasp of what's happening in the world is probably matched only by their cynicism. <laughs> um, some, some extraordinary characters. So I was never a big journalist, although I did enjoy it. But what I did do there was meet a lot of people who were and got an extraordinary insight into how those people see the world. And it was a very mixed picture that I picked up. You know, there's some, there's some journalists who are fantastic. You can do a lot of good in the job. I mean, you'd, if, if you see it as your duty to go out, find things out that no one knows about, and to write about them in a truthful way, then you are really contributing to the kind of society that I want to live in. But hey, guess what? There were some other kinds of journalists who were just, you know, just really cynical, would grab stories, would distort them, would know in advance what they wanted to do to a person that they were interviewing or to a story that they were covering. And they would just like hunt till they got the three word soundbite they needed, put stuff in out of context, manipulate the witness and all of this to get the story they wanted, you know, and often very cynically because it made good copy rather than because it was the truth. And you get those two kinds of people in journalism. Our only defence as a society is that readers, you know, readers of newspapers are getting smarter and smarter. You know, viewers of TV are getting smarter and smarter. And it's harder with the internet now to pull the wool over people's eyes. You know, truth is is becoming more and more obligatory in journalism, and that's weeding out um, a, lot of, a lot of the bad apples that I met. But it's a strange personality, journalism, because you know, it is a very powerful job. I mean, these people aren't suffering from delusions of power. I mean, they are powerful, 
and you can use that or you can abuse it. And some of the characters in Incendiary abuse it shamelessly, and uh, I've sadly bumped into people like that, just as I have bumped into some great journalists. You know, some of the most important work that's being done at the moment is by journalists. Like, you know, Jason Burke, I think, is a is a great example of a guy that's doing a lot of good. You know, he was out there in Afghanistan and Iraq, actually covering the story, finding out facts. You know, long before it was fashionable to be in Afghanistan and Iraq, and he's written some great stuff about it. You know, that's the that's wonderful journalism. Sad, sadly rare in news, people that actually go out and cover the story.